This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. Hear the Word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We'll give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray as we study your word that you, by your spirit, would help us to understand it. Help us, Lord, to apply it to ourselves. We pray, Father, that you would show us those things you would have us to know. and pray that you would feed our souls on your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friday night, I had the pleasure of seeing Perimeter Christian School's production of the best Christmas pageant ever. Included in the cast were our own Julia Blair and Hannah Blair. And it's one of those plays that is about a play, a play within a play. It's a story, of course, of a church's Christmas pageant, a production that they had put on for years. Well, this year's production was going to be a little different, okay, a lot different, because the Herdmans would be in it. The Herdmans were rough kids. They beat up other kids. They smoked cigars in the bathroom, and that was just the girls. Now, normally church was a good place to go to avoid the Herdman children, but when it was let out that there were freshments to be had in Sunday school, the Herdmans decided to attend, and that on the very Sunday when they were calling for volunteers for the various roles in the church Christmas production, and the Herdmans without any knowledge of the Christmas story at all, the Herdmans volunteered. Well, the church members and their children were aghast. But the likes of the Herdman kids would even be in church, let alone be starring in their Christmas pageant. But the likes of Imogene Herdman would play the Holy Virgin Mary, and get her grubby little hands all over the baby Jesus doll. What would Jesus think? 
What would Jesus think? Our passage this morning gives us a clue as to what Jesus might have thought about that. It describes, obviously, how Jesus calls Matthew, also known as Levi, to be his disciple. It begins in Capernaum, back in verse 1. Matthew refers to it as Jesus' own city. He's referring there to Capernaum, in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus had taken up residence there, uh, presumably after his rejection in his hometown of Nazareth. And there in Capernaum, he encounters a tax collector, a guy named Matthew, who's working there at his tax booth or tax office. Capernaum, given its location, was uh, on a major trade route to the east, uh, to lands beyond. And so it's no surprise that Matthew, as a tax collector, would be there, collecting tariffs, presumably, on uh, on goods that were passing through Capernaum, in and out. Well, Matthew would not be anyone's first round draft pick to become uh, a disciple of any rabbi, let alone an up and coming rabbi like Jesus. Uh, As a tax collector, Matthew was a pariah, an outcast among his fellow Jews. And as we think about that, we really come to the first observation we want to make about this passage. And that is Jesus calls sinners. Jesus calls sinners. Matthew would have been a a tremendous surprise to be a follower of any rabbi. The Jews despised Matthew as a traitor because as a tax collector, he was collaborating with the hated Roman oppressors. He would have been considered a traitor. He would have been considered a thief because it was... Uh, well known to be a common practice among tax collectors to gather as much as they could, even beyond what Rome required, and pocket the difference. And in so doing, many became quite wealthy as a result of this system. They would have loathed him as a thief. They would have viewed him as a burden on any social occasion and would not have uh, welcomed him in polite, uh, especially religious company. It may well have been that Matthew's last name was Herdman. And yet it was to this man that Jesus walks up here in our passage, looks him straight in the eye, and says, follow me. Matthew knew full well what Jesus was saying. Jesus wasn't saying, come with me, please. Jesus wasn't saying, walk this way. It was a call to discipleship. It was a call to leave behind an old life and begin something new. It was a call to leave behind everything he had known to believe in Jesus, to become his disciple, to be devoted to him. And it says Matthew got up and followed Jesus. Now, you'll notice, of course, at the top of your page that this is Matthew's gospel. Same Matthew, uh, whom Jesus calls here, who gets up and follows Jesus, is the one who wrote this account in which this occurs. And so it's not surprising that uh, Luke, when he writes about this, Luke, the one who so carefully researched all of these events, 
uh, as he prepared to write the gospel that bears his name, that whereas Matthew simply says he rose and followed him, Luke includes this detail that Matthew modestly does not. Luke says he got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. There was a very sharp break with what had gone before. Now, we read that, and it's a little bit puzzling, if only because it seems so abrupt, if only because it just raises questions. Is this the first time Matthew ever saw Jesus? Why would he just come up and say, follow him, and he just leaves behind everything he'd known and follows Jesus? It does raise a lot of questions, a lot of uh, things we could maybe uh, think about. Uh, It's possible, of course, that Matthew knew at least who Jesus was. I mean, how could you how could you live in Capernaum and Jesus is there any length of time and not at least know who he was? It's possible that Matthew had heard Jesus teach. It's also possible that Matthew had had conversations with Jesus prior to this. We don't know. It's possible Matthew had been rethinking his life for quite some time as the Spirit of God was beginning to work on him. We just don't know. Maybe when Jesus came up to Matthew and said, follow me, Matthew heard the voice that called a universe into existence, and there was nothing for it but to obey. Maybe. We don't know. What we do know is that Matthew walked away from it all to follow Jesus, and his life would never again be the same. Jesus calls sinners. Those whom the world looks down on, those who may look down on themselves. Jesus calls a man like Matthew to come and to be his disciple. You know, it teaches us that that our sin does not render us beyond salvation. It, in fact, qualifies us for salvation. The Lord Jesus calls sinners. There's this mistaken idea out there that if you're good enough, you go to heaven. That is a perversion. That's Islam. That's not Christianity. A couple problems with that. One, there's nobody who's good. And two, there's certainly nobody good enough to earn his way or her way into heaven because the qualification is perfection. And only one has ever lived in absolute perfection, and that's Jesus. But the good news is that he did it for us. He did it for everyone who would believe in him. Dying on the cross to pay for our failure to live the perfect life God requires. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That God in his mercy sent us a substitute, a proxy, to die the death we deserved and to live the life for us we couldn't live. So that as we trust in him, his death covers our sin. His righteousness provides that righteousness we need to stand before God. It didn't matter that Matthew was a sinful man. Jesus was going to provide for him all the righteousness he would ever need for this life and for eternity. And so that's the first thing we see here in this passage is that Jesus calls sinners. He called a guy like Matthew. Later on, he would call a guy like Saul of Tarsus. 
It's not an isolated event. Matthew's not the exception. Jesus calls sinners, some more notorious than others, like Matthew, but all sinners, all of us sinners. The second observation we can make about this passage as we look at it, not only does Jesus call sinners, Jesus hangs out with sinners. It's not as though he calls them and says, okay, you know, I saved you, but you need to keep your distance. I, I am the Holy One of Israel. Don't get too close. Jesus hangs out with this very sinful people that he calls. Notice what he, what he describes in verses 10 and 11. The scene changes. It's Matthew's house. Party. There's this rumble of conversation in the air as they're all gathered there. And there's different people there. Jesus is there. He's reclining at the table. His disciples were there. There were other tax collectors there. And there were others of these people called sinners. People who, uh, on the one hand, may have been pretty no- notorious sinners in one way or another, but also people that the Pharisees called sinners who were pretty average morally maybe, but just didn't keep all the rules and regulations that the Pharisees kept and, and liked to impose on others. But they referred to them as, somewhat in a derogatory fashion, as sinners, tax collectors and sinners. It was almost one word. But that's the crowd that's gathered here in, in Matthew's house. Um, like the tax collectors, the sinners weren't really welcome in polite company, in religious company, so they found their friends and their companionship where they could. Now, it is a little strange that a religious leader like Jesus should be the guest of honor at such a gathering. That they would want to honor him or that he would be present in such a gathering. We can only assume that this occasion took place because Matthew wanted his colleagues and friends to meet Jesus. This man who changed his life maybe would help to explain the change that they saw in Matthew's life, but certainly Matthew had all of these friends, and he wanted them to meet Jesus and get to know Jesus as well. Now, maybe right away, maybe it was a little while later, the Pharisees got wind of this gathering. Of course, they didn't like it. Was it right? What does Jesus mean associating with those kinds of people? Wasn't he a religious leader? Shouldn't he have known better? Wasn't he conscious of his reputation? What would people think? What would they think of him if he's associating with these kinds of people? And so they asked the disciples. Actually, they don't ask Jesus. We don't know if Jesus was there or they told him later. Maybe he overheard. Uh, maybe it was out of deference to Jesus that they asked the disciples instead. Or maybe they just knew like we do. It's much more fun to talk about people than it is to talk to people. So they talked to his disciples about Jesus and asked him a question. Which wasn't, of course, you pick up, not really a question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, it wasn't so much a question as it was an accusation. Now, what, what, kind, of, what kind of teacher does that? You know, a real religious teacher doesn't hang out with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Ergo, Jesus is no religious teacher. That was kind of the, 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 the logic going on here. Therefore, he's not much. But notice what happened here. Jesus went to Matthew's house, met Matthew's friends, spent time with them, was, was quite happy even to eat with them, which was 
You know, the Pharisees might have been willing to dispense advice to a sinner or a tax collector at arm's length, but sit at the table with them? Well, we would sit. Recline at the table with them? No. No way. That implied a level of fellowship and relationship that they were not willing to enter into, but Jesus was. Now, as you think about that, there's several things here that, that come to mind. One is, are we willing to associate with sinners? Are we willing to get to know, to spend time with people who are not believers? People whose lives may, uh, in and of themselves, be uh, not very attractive, maybe even repulsive to us? Or do we sort of have the mentality of the Pharisees that says, no, 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 keep your distance, keep your distance from me. There's another thought that comes to mind here, and that has to do with Matthew becoming a follower of Jesus. Matthew had lots of friends who weren't. Do you realize when somebody becomes a Christian, at that point, they have their best evangelistic opportunity available to them, probably than they ever will again, because they have non-Christian friends. They have friends who are not followers of Jesus. After a while, after a year or two, increasingly, their friends become believers. And increasingly, they have less and less contact with, with unbelievers. Now, we want to be careful because, yes, our primary fellowship, primary counsel, so forth, should be from believers, people who have submitted themselves to Christ, following Christ, knowledgeable about his word, and so forth. Jesus' closest friends were not Matthew's fellow tax collectors and his sinner friends. They were his disciples, guys like Peter and James and John. Those were his closest friends. But that didn't mean Jesus cut off himself from the companionship and the friendship and interactions with other people whose lives the Pharisees looked down on. See, Jesus hung out with sinners. He sought out opportunities to talk to them. People who, whose lives were questionable. And if you think they would be questionable and even offensive to you, Think what they must have been like to Jesus, whose eyes were too pure than to look on iniquity. At least you share sinfulness with them. Jesus didn't. And yet he was willing to hang out with sinners. And yes, his reputation suffered in certain quarters because of that. And in response to the question of the Pharisees, we come to the third observation here. Not only does Jesus call sinners, not only does Jesus hang out with sinners, but then Jesus explicitly says, I came for sinners. Notice what he says uh, in verse 12 when he responds. He says, those who are well, he responds with a proverb. First, a proverb. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, that's, that's a proverb. It's, it's an observation. It's not the healthy people who need a doctor. It's the people who are sick. And we'd say, well, of course. What kind of doctor would it be who refused to go anywhere near sick people? I only hang out with people who are healthy. Well, be a doctor name only. Wouldn't be carrying out the function of it. It wouldn't be a very good one. That was the Pharisees. 
That was the Pharisees. They were supposed to be physicians of the soul to those who were sick with sin. Problem was, they didn't like them, they didn't try to get near them, and they wouldn't associate with them. All they would do is look down on them and condemn them. Part two of Jesus' reply was an Old Testament quotation, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's quoting from Hosea 6, verse 6. And in that context, in Hosea, what God was saying was he wanted people who had a heart for him that showed itself in mercy to other people. He he didn't want people who had this outward empty shell of religious activity. He wanted people who had a heart for God that showed itself in compassion toward others, not people whose religion was an empty shell of activity, sacrifices without heart. What does it mean here? Well, what Jesus means for the Pharisees as he quotes that verse, is that he wants people who have a heart for him, who show it in their mercy toward others, not people who had this outward empty shell of religious activity. The application was exactly the same as in Hosea's day to now. God wants your heart. And a heart for God will show itself in a heart for other people, not the outward shell of religious activity. That's what Jesus is saying. He quotes that Old Testament passage directly with respect to the Pharisees. And notice what he says, go and learn what this means. Why does he say that? That's kind of a rebuke. It's almost a little bit of a, of a put down. Uh, it, was a, it was a common admonition that a rabbi might make to his student, to his disciple, who needed to go back and think about it some more, who, who had not quite understood the scriptures correctly. And he's saying to the Pharisees, you know, you have this reputation for being Bible experts, but you haven't really got it at all. You haven't really understood what it all means. And then the third part of his reply, reply, there was a a, a proverb, a quotation, and finally just a a flat, direct statement. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus does not mean here that he views the Pharisees as righteous. After all, he said earlier in chapter 5, Uh, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They did have a righteousness of a sort. And maybe there was kind of a relative righteousness with respect to these people that they condemned and looked down on. But Jesus says, look, you're not going to be in the kingdom unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. Part of the shock value of that statement was people thought, how could that be possible? These were these were the, the paragons of righteousness. This was as as good as it got. Jesus said, look, unless yours is better than them, you won't be in heaven. Because they needed a real heart righteousness. They had a righteousness, sort of righteousness. uh, But that's what Jesus is saying to them. Um, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus was making here a statement about the very nature of his messianic mission. It was not some social accident that he wound up sitting with the tax collectors and sinners. It wasn't sort of a a side project that he had going on. They were the very reason that he came into this world, which, by the way, implies pre-existence. That's maybe a different sermon. But Jesus often speaks of his coming into the world, coming for this purpose, which implies that he came from somewhere else, that he existed before. And so that's what he's saying, not just willingness to eat with them, but they're the whole reason that he came. That's the statement that Jesus makes. 
That's why he came. Now, there's a couple things that should maybe come to mind as you think about that. Number one, it was for people like you and me that Jesus came in our sin. Remember, the sin does not disqualify us from salvation. It's what qualifies us for what Jesus came to do. He came for people like you and me. But it should also speak to us as we look around, uh, because it should imply that if we are followers of Christ, and if Jesus came to save sinful people, then at least part of our Christian outlook ought to be an awareness of people around us who don't know Jesus, and to begin to pray and maybe think about ways that we might be able, like Matthew did, to introduce them to the Jesus who saved us. Because that's what Jesus says he came for. He came to save sinners. He came just for people like these tax collectors and sinners. Which tells us that there's no one whose life is so wicked, whose heart is so hardened, that Christ cannot save them. That they are somehow beyond the pale of what Jesus came to do. In fact, their sinfulness is the very thing Jesus came to address. And so that should be encouraging. Uh, Jesus saved us. He saved me. He can save others, and he can do that through us, through me, just as presumably he did through Matthew. Jesus calls sinners, calls them to follow him, become his disciples. Jesus associates with sinners. He was not ashamed to be in their company. And he he came precisely because he had something to offer them that they needed, but they certainly weren't getting it from the Pharisees. And then to recognize that Jesus flat out states his purpose was to come for sinners. And so as we think about people we know, the temptation may be to look down on them. It may be to criticize or condemn them in our minds, maybe in our words. But Jesus said it was just for people like this that I came. In the best Christmas pageant ever, the church people looked at the herdmen's as people to be avoided. They were aghast that they were in their church, let alone in their Christmas play. What would Jesus think? What would Jesus think? I think... Jesus would have been glad that they had the opportunity to learn the Christmas story firsthand, to learn that God's love is so great for sinners that he sent his son into the world to save us from our sin. After all, the very kind of people Jesus came for. Who are the herdmans in your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming for people like the Herdmans. Thank you for coming for people like us. Lord God, we have nothing we have not received. Lord, we recognize that our salvation, our love for you, the fact we're here this morning, all of it is a gift of your grace. We thank you for it. Father, we pray for that gift for others. Pray that you might use us to be the conduit by which that grace flows to others, that they too might know you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.